Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we need your spirit to understand your word, to apply that word to our lives. And so we pray that you would give us the eyes to see what John saw so that we could have the ears to hear what John heard so that we could live lives of worship and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you understand history? Maybe you think that's a pretty arcane question. That seems pretty abstract, maybe overly academic. But here's the truth. We all live with some sense of how human history unfolds. And that understanding of how we understand history profoundly shapes how we live today. Um, And it's probably an important question for us who are living in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, where is this all headed, right? Are we just victims of circumstance, helpless players in the flow of history? Or is there another way to understand history? The ancients saw history as uh, symbolized in a wheel. It was this repeated, endless cycle. It began with creation, and there would be rise, and there would be demise, and then destruction, and then rebirth again. And it was an endless cycle. And those cycles sometimes could take millions of years, but it was an ongoing, endless cycle with little resolution. And generally, you were powerless to change that cycle. Today, we live in a postmodern, a very secular world, and that culture holds to a very different belief about history. Today, the general mindset is that history is naturally progressing to some good future, to a very bright future. Progressives, they would call themselves, believe that uh, the power, the ingenuity of humanity is such that it can create this better future. It is the conviction in this inevitable progress, this inevitable progressive nature of history towards a brighter future. Part of that is rooted in some Christian convictions, but in our secular world, it's been divorced from God, the central player in history. But that progressive understanding of human history is why you often would hear some people say about certain actions or certain positions, you know, that has no place in the 21st century, um, or that's just so out of step with the times. But that modern notion of historical progress really has been too optimistic about both history and human nature. It assumes that whatever's new, whatever's the latest, whatever's happening right now is part of that natural progression of history, and we need to align ourselves with that. But I hope you get a sense of how precarious, how dangerous that is, because it really, it gives carte blanche approval to whatever's going on right now, despite its flaws, despite even its cruelty. You know, the Nazis and communist regimes, they were all utterly convinced that they were on the right side of history. Now, more recently, there's a debate um, about history and about whether history is making any progress at all. The hopefulness about future has really lost its shine. You know, think of technology. We're asking a lot of important questions about technology and whether it can deliver the good future we imagined. And we wonder, we're asking, are we just being played by bots and trolls and algorithms? Are we reduced to some dehumanized future? Think of all so many films that picture the future. They're mostly dystopian about a pretty bleak future. So how do we understand history? Enter Revelation. 
which gives us a deeply Christian and a profoundly hopeful understanding of history. It helps us also, I think, understand our moment in time right now. It's, it's a paradoxical understanding of history, interestingly enough, because it's, it's far more pessimistic and far more optimistic at the same time than any other worldview. So in Revelation, what we see is we see the reality of human evil and sin, and we see how profoundly flawed we are and how unable we are in hum, human history to even save ourselves. And we see how we may have indeed some terrible stages of history coming at us yet. No other religion, I think, has such a dark view of human depravity, just saying we're capable of great evil. But the Christian understanding of history is also incredibly hopeful because the promise is not that every chapter in history will be better than the one prior to it, but rather we are heading towards a time and a place in which all things will work together. All the wrong, all what's bent and broken and bruised in human history is going to come together in a beautiful new whole in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation shows us that history is under control of the slain lamb of God who is moving it purposefully toward a great and really irreversible climax. And it shows us that we as God's people are participants in the unfolding of that history. You and I are not helpless actors. We are God-ordained players in human history. Now, as we move deeper into Revelation, I think we're hitting a point in the book of Revelation where a number of people might start trailing off. Because if you thought what we covered earlier in Revelation was weird and scary, well, it gets a little weirder and a little scarier. And maybe it's good for us just to name that reality. There's so much about Revelation that is really strange, isn't it? And it can scare us, and so maybe we ought to leave it out. And maybe what scares us also is some of Jesus' friends who avidly read Revelation and they freak us out a little bit too. G.K. Chesterton once wrote about uh, those commentators. He said, Though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Revelation, you might remember, is not this gloom and doom prediction of end times. It is an apocalypse. And an apocalypse is a revealing. It is a pulling back the curtain, showing us what was always present there, but hidden from sight. The revelation, it's filled with strange beasts, visions that are otherworldly. And John is revealing through those things. And he's, he's doing it because he's trying to spark our imagination. He's trying to sort of waken us up to reality. Artists, you know, they do this for us all the time, don't they? They take image, they take metaphor, which helps us to see reality bigger, better. The writer Flannery O'Connor did that in her work. She would have very strange, bizarre um, actors in her, her stories. Someone asked her about that. Why are the characters so strange? She said, to the heart of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. I imagine John might say the same thing about Revelation. It's this 
imaginative theological work of art that is trying to spark in us a bigger vision of reality. And it's so helpful because it can seem, <clears throat> when we look out at the world, that this world is guided, that human history is ruled by market forces or by powerful regimes or technological systems. <clears throat> but that's not true. We're not seeing reality correctly. The one who was in charge of everything, the one who was worthy to open the scroll of human history, it is the crucified Jesus Christ, the slain lamb. And so Revelation 6, which is where we're at in the Revelation, it opens with the Lamb breaking the seven seals on the scroll of history. And one by one, the seals are broken. And in the first four, we meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horsemen are not, as some people assume, some future portent galloping into our future. No, no, no. They are, these four horsemen are symbolic of the ills that have afflicted human history and continue to afflict us. They are picturing for us the deep wounds of this world that plague us, and unless we deal with them and deal with them directly and forthrightly, they'll continue to plague us. First, we meet a white horse. It says the rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. This first horse, it's unnamed. And there's a reason for it, because it represents really every empire that has dominated and bullied and has grabbed for power. They only rule by taking power that rightly belongs to Jesus. And so this first horse is evil imitating itself as Jesus. Then next, the red horse, a fiery red horse. The rider was given power to take peace from the earth, to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. It's war. The red horse is representative of spilled blood. As evil asserts itself in this world and against the rule, the kingdom of God, it generates war. There's conflict. There's opposition. And every time there's a war, it feels like the world is falling apart. It's it's almost decreation, the unraveling of the good that God has created in the world. And then third, we have a black horse. The rider was holding, it says, a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. This horse is representing greed and injustice, the economic imbalance and inequality that continues to plague our world. Because we read that here, the cost of the food of the poor, which is the wheat and the barley, is jacked up, so it costs a full day's wage. But don't touch the luxury goods of oil and wine. The rich get off easy. And then there's the fourth horse, the pale horse. It is named death. And Hades was followed close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. It's clearly named Horus. This is death. And it is riding, galloping through the earth. And you've got to believe that that pale horse has COVID-19 in its arsenal too. So these four horsemen symbolize all that has destroyed in human history. Human history has always been filled with these four, and it continues to be filled. 
and I hate to say it, but being a Christian doesn't get you a pass from those things. Christians, along with everyone else, have faced those terrors of human history, just like this pandemic affects Christians and non-Christians. And now in seal number five, we see that reality. We see underneath the altar are those who have died because of their faithfulness to God. I don't know if you caught some news reports about uh, some Christians in the United States, and in contravention to what government authorities were saying, they met for worship, and I saw a reporter interviewing someone coming out of that church, and the reporter asked, no, why are you doing this? You know, you're, you're threatening your own life, you're uh, perhaps uh, causing a threat to other people with the coronavirus, and this person said, well, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. And I'm sorry, but that just makes Jesus into a rabbit foot, right? He, you know, some magical incantation that is going to cover your life. And Revelation actually has none of that. Uh, the church, as it follows the way of Lamb, still gets caught in the clash of the kingdoms. And then there's the sixth seal that's broken. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. That pictures the crisis of the whole world unraveling. Again, decreation. It's not God sending this, but really it's a picture of a world that turns on its maker and says, we do not want nothing to do with your will. And what happens when God is removed from the equation, creation folds in on itself. It's interesting, a picture like that. Many people uh, hear something like that and they think, oh, the Bible, you know, it's so fixated on these doom and gloom pictures of the end of the world. But here's something I find interesting, especially as you look at modern culture. It's Hollywood that is really fixated on the end of the world. I mean, think of all the films that come out that draw from this sort of imagery, um, zombie films, Seth Rogen and This is the End, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Mad Max, Independence Day, Armageddon, The Day After. So many of them are are drawing, borrowing imagery from the Bible, except for one thing. They leave Jesus out of it. What the revelation actually shows us is something full of hope because of Jesus. That despite the unfolding of history, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, holds the scroll. He is the one in charge of all things, and he is bringing history to its good and purposeful end. And that is good news. And so we see in chapter 7 a vision of how God's people will be delivered through all these terrors. We are made secure. We read, an angel comes and puts a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And then I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. They have the seal of the Lord, which is, which is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God within us that protects, that enables our faith to be lived even in the midst of crisis. God's people were not insulated from the troubles of the world, but within them were sustained, were made secure. And that number, 144,000, lots of ink spilled over that. What is it? Is it an actual 144,000? But remember, throughout Revelation, numbers are all symbolic. This is not a statistic. This is a symbol that John is giving to us. 144,000 is 12, 12 apostles, times 12, 12 disciples, 
uh, 12 um, tribes, times 10, times 10, times 10. John is saying, this is a huge number. It's immense. It's immeasurable. In fact, later on, John references that. He said, I saw a multitude which no one could number. Now, what is he saying in this? John is reminding the church, revealing to the church that in the course of history, in the rise and fall of empires and nations, it's the church that is the most significant, the most enduring gathering. Remember, revelation, it is revealing reality, right? So church, you may think, oh, church these days in our modern secular culture, it is an irrelevant thing. It may seem that the real power is held by corporations or powerful leaders or the wealthy or celebrities with huge followings. Again, things are not as they seem. Revelation reminds us the church is the most significant reality in the unfolding of history. History is filled with all sorts of fearful forces, war, famine, plague, death. But in reality... The church, those who follow the lamb on the throne, the church is the most fearful force in history. And then we hear silence. You you expect with all this action going on as we approach the seventh seal, something big, something's going to happen, but all of heaven is silent. All the worship that has gone on from eternity is hushed. And then there's an angel with lots of incense, and it's mixed with the prayers of the saints, and the angel takes a censer and fills it with fire from the altar and hurls it to the earth. And there was thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What makes the church the most significant force in the unfolding of history? Well, it's right here. It's prayers. All heaven is silent as God listens, hears the prayers of his people. And then those prayers, they get taken and they're folded into God's purpose. And they're hurled back into history, into space and time, in history-altering ways. Prayer, it is the most potent thing for you and I. It is more powerful than four horsemen, more powerful than earthquakes, There are all sorts of reasons for the upheavals of history, but one of the biggest reasons are the prayers of the followers of Jesus. Which makes prayer something frightening, doesn't it? There's something frightening about prayer. You ever believe that your prayers unleash thunder and lightning and earthquakes? we got to come to grips with that. One author, Annie Dillard, helps us understand what we're dealing with. She writes this. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs. I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely call upon? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? She says, the churches are like children playing on the floor with chemistry stets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to come to worship wearing hats and velvet hats. We should all be wearing crash helmets, she says. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, and the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Revelation reveals something of that 
power of prayer, that prayer is this most powerful, potent reality, more powerful than war, stronger than plague, more powerful and potent than death and hell itself. It's a little strange how we can reduce our prayers to, you know, a little list that we offer up to God of here's our concerns, here's what we need, God. And that's an important part of prayer. Don't mistake that. But it's so much more. In Revelation, the prayers of the saints are part of the unfolding of history. The prayers of God's people have this cosmic impact. Your kingdom come may be the most dangerous words you ever utter. Come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. The whole book of Revelation, you hear these words. Jesus who is coming. Not who will come. But who is coming. His kingdom is underway. It is in history, in time. And our prayers are the most practical, most potent thing anyone can do. Because in our prayers, we participate in this coming of the kingdom, in the work of God. The reformer Martin Luther, I think, got this so right. As he talked about prayer, he said this. He said, we must remember that one who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. Satan is opposed to the church, he said. And so the best thing we can do, therefore, is put our fists together and pray. I love that image. Put your fists together and pray. Whenever you call someone to pray, maybe that's what you got to say. Let us put our fists together and pray. Right now, in our church, we are calling the church to 10 days of concerted prayer. Last Sunday, no, last Thursday was Ascension Day, when we remember Jesus going to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, to reign, to rule. But before he ascended, Jesus called his disciples to wait and pray for the Holy Spirit. And so we are calling our church to pray in these coming days. Pentecost Sunday is next Sunday. In this week, we are calling people to pray. You can join in a Zoom call every morning at 8 a.m. We are gathering to pray. You can download some of the daily common prayer resources and join in prayer that way. But is there anything more important for us to do in history than to put our fists together and pray? Your kingdom come, God, here in Toronto as it is in heaven. Put your fists together and pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Pour out your renewing power on our church in this city, across this world to heal and renew it. As we think about this passage, the scroll of history, there's much to fear in the scroll of history. Powerful empires, Famine, death, hell. But remember, Christ has conquered those. He's dealt with those already. So whatever else that might cause you fear, would you bring that to God in prayer? Watch what the slain lamb does with our prayers. Amen. We're going to take a moment of quiet reflection right now. Up on your screens is going to come a reflection question. Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit what uh, the Spirit is saying to you right now.